You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. From Shakespeare to Schwartz, from Fosse to Alvin Ailey, from Sondheim to Borellis, from McNally to Faye, it happened to the greats, it still happens every day. When lightning strikes, it's the moment you know. When lightning strikes, where you're meant to go, you can stand and shout your Hi, this is Gerald Brunner, and you're listening to When Lightning Strikes, where we talk about the tingly mic drop moments that led you to becoming an artist. Sharon Wheatley is an original cast member in the Broadway hit Come From Away. She has the distinction of being the only actress to appear in Cats, Les Miserables, and the Phantom of the Opera on Broadway. When the pandemic shutdown come from away, Wheatley and her family hit the road in a 30-foot RV to crisscross the United States. A gifted writer, she chronicles her adventure in her riveting new book, Drive, Stories from Somewhere in the Middle of Nowhere. Welcome. Hi, thank you so much. Thank you. It's such a delight to have you. It's just great to be here. Thank you so much. I was listening to some of your podcasts last night so that I could be sure to catch up. And I was listening to Anika Larson in particular, who I did Avenue Q with. Yes, absolutely. Oh, she's so wonderful. I love it. Yeah. I was n- it was nice to listen because I've I had lost track of her a little bit. It's so <laughs> I feel like I caught up even though I didn't actually talk to her. It was such a nice personable interview. So it made me excited for today. I'm so excited to have you and I love here that you were on that I, I love here that you were in Avenue Q, that you you have multitudes of talents. I mean, not only are you a gorgeous performer, you're a beautiful storyteller. Your books are magnificent. I just love Tell the Fat Girl Sings and, of course, Drive. And here you're a puppeteer as well. Yeah, yeah I am. Isn't that funny? It's just this <laughs> one of the... I, I don't really think about it because, of course, all of it was over such a long span of time. But... Uh, yeah, Avenue Q was one of those shows that I saw the original cast. I had no idea what it was walking in the door and my friend Evan Ensign was the production stage manager and I sent him a text. I don't even think it had opened yet. I think it was in previews, but it was in previews on Broadway because it ran at the Vineyard originally. And I sent him a text and I said, do you think there's any way you can get me a ticket? It was one of those rare nights when I wasn't home with... Um, my older daughter, I was out on the town for whatever reason. I must've had one of those nights where I was like, I have to have like a mommy night. And I walked in and I saw the show and I just remember Stephanie DiBruzzo walking on stage and she had this puppet and I had this moment, which rarely happens, but when it happens, I, I'm, I'm right. And I thought I'm supposed to do this show And I would not be deterred. I remember I called my agent the next day and I said probably something like, I'm supposed to do Avenue Q, something dorky (laughs) like that. And it probably, you know, 20 of her other clients had also called and said the same thing. (laughs) And she said, do you know how to work a, and I remember hearing her shuffle paperwork on her desk and she said, a rod puppet. They're asking for people who can run a rod puppet. And I 
I didn't even know what it was. And I said, no, but here's what I know. They're going to have to train people. The number of people who are going to be able to do a Broadway show and professionally puppeteer, there aren't going to be that many. So they're either going to have to train puppeteers to be musical theater actors, or they're going to have to train musical theater actors to be puppeteers. And if I know one thing about myself, it's that if I want to do something, I'm tenacious. And I could just tell, I just knew I I'm just, that's the right match for me. And so I just bought myself a puppet and talk to back to my daughter, talk to my daughter with my puppet all the time. And, and everybody, every, you know, she'd be in the bathtub and I'd be like, Hey, what are you doing over there? Come here. I'm going to wash your hair. You know, just any making animating, animating all of her toys, making all of them talk in funny voices. And I think that when I finally went in for the audition, I was so, um, used to animating inanimate objects that other people walked in with fear. And I definitely walked in like, I'm going to show you this weird thing that I can do. So my puppeteering wasn't perfect in my audition, but I was game. And I think they were looking more for who, who was not afraid. And I wasn't afraid. So I think that helped. (laughs) That's a beautiful story. I think about your, your wonderful tale of of cats and your <laughs> cats audition. It reminds me of that, that you even messed up. You worked so hard mm-hmm. and then they threw in a brand new combo mm-hmm. or a combo that wasn't on the video. That's right. You do, and then you messed up with joy. Yeah. P.S. You booked it. I know. I know. Again, I though, that. I looked around and I thought, I don't think they're actually looking for the greatest tap dancer in New York City. Because I kept turning down the audition and I thought somebody, I just looked around and there were maybe 50 women there and I knew 48 of them. And I knew all of us from going to all the same auditions and I knew what they all looked like in a dance audition and me too. And I thought, well, obviously they're not looking for dancers because this isn't the crowd that would be there. So we were at the Winter Garden Theater, which, you know, you very rarely, at least in my experience, maybe other people do this, but in my experience, you very rarely audition on the Broadway stage itself. And so that was a thrill. And, and I just thought, oh, I think it was the day after Memorial Day and I had given up the weekend um, and not gone out of town with my family to stay home and learn the opening number of Cats off of the the movie that they made in London. And, and I thought, you know, if I can just throw my body in the right direction, maybe this will happen. And I, again, I think they just thought it was funny that I thought it was funny. Basically. (laughs) I think that's what they wanted. I don't know how it happened, but it did. (laughs) I love your tenacity. I love your (laughs) drive. Forgive the pun. Let's talk about your lightning strikes moment. Can you talk about moments when you knew this was the life for you, that this was your path? It's funny because I know that's the name of the podcast. And so I kept really thinking like, what was my lightning strike moment? And, and I don't know if this is interesting or not interesting, but I would say I just had an awareness. I don't, I don't understand where it came from because I'm not from any sort of a showbiz family at all. And I just had a very deep knowing and understanding that this is what I was going to do. And it was so deep in me that I knew very strange things. Like I didn't really want to waste my time doing local children's theater in Cincinnati, Ohio. I did one audition for a local children's theater and it was for The Sound of Music and I didn't book it as they would say. And, and I left and I thought, I'm (laughs) so obnoxious. I mean, I'm like eight, but I thought I'm better than this. I don't know. I have no idea where this came from, but I was just gifted it from birth. It was somehow in my, my, this obnoxious trait was 
in my DNA. <laughs> well, in your book, you talk about seeing when it, it, Oliver. Oh yeah, you know, and how transforming that was, and how you were speechless. Yeah. You described that so beautifully. I was also mad. Yeah. I went to see yeah. Oliver at Cincinnati Playhouse in the park. My parents had tickets, which is the only theatrical thing that happened in my house, which is a big deal. But they went on Saturday night with their friends and then they'd go out to dinner. So they saw all the new plays and then they would come home and complain about them. And somehow (laughs) one of them happened to be Oliver. And I don't know how it came to pass that I went, but I did. And I remember, I could tell you, if we were in the theater, I could walk over to where we sat. I can remember my point of view on the stage. And I remember getting hot all over when the kids came out and and watching them sing and dance. And I remember this feeling of being so gypped. I was so mad that I hadn't been called. I just was like, I just thought I should absolutely be up there doing that. And I was, I, I had the same feeling when I watched Andrew and McArdle on this television series called, or tele, made for TV movie called Maybe Over the Rainbow that was yes. about Judy Garland's life. Yes. And I remember rolling in, there was like a little black and white TV that my brother and I shared and I rolled it into my room after I was supposed to be in bed and I remember watching it. And the thing that I remember is it wasn't the TV that woke my parents up. It was me crying because again, I could not understand how Andrea McArdle had become who she was and why was I still miserable in my rainbow sheets in my bedroom surrounded by show posters (laughs) and not, you know, doing this. I mean, it just really, it was like that. That's incredible. I, but I love stories about you singing in the car mm-hmm. and your family saying, wait a minute. Yeah. That's pretty I damn do. good. I remember everybody <laughs> singing along. It was James Taylor's You've Got a Friend. And I remember everyone sort of singing along. And then the sense that everyone else was dropping out and I was still singing along. And then there was that sort of quiet after. And I remember somebody saying, you're really good. And then there being a conversation about the fact that I could really sing. And I thought that was kind of cool. And I, But I also was like, I know. It was like a superpower. I had this like secret power. So, I love that. You, I didn't have a secret power it. for math, but I had a secret superpower to be able to sing. And then you held on to that. I did. You know, even when you heard the lows, very yeah. low, you know. Yeah. And let, can you talk about when you first performed on stage, the concert you did? Oh, yeah, the, yeah. 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 Well, I did. I went to Air Elementary in Cincinnati, Ohio, which is um, the opposite of a performing arts school. And just this basic suburban, you know, cute school. And I remember being in the third grade and there were auditions for solos in the concert. It was the first time that I'd had any sort of choir. Sometimes I hear about how kids, even my own kids, don't have music in school. And I think, what would I, what would have happened to me? I don't even know. But anyway, Mr. Perry, my music teacher, had everybody who wanted to have a solo had to raise their hand. And I remember we were all sitting on risers. And I remember the three people who got solos and that I was one of them. It was me and Pam Grammer and Meredith Potter. And we all sang solos in Free Bootin' from the musical Tom Sawyer, which I think was maybe written by Mr. Perry. And <laughs> and uh, yeah. And I remember when it got to be my turn, just thinking, watch out, here I come. And then later on, Meredith Potter, who I still talk to, um, we were singing Where is Love as a duet from Oliver. And Meredith was the most popular. I mean, Meredith is the coolest still. She was just like blonde and blue eyed and she was cool. Like her parents were divorced. I thought that was super cool. And just everything about her was awesome. And I felt so honored that I was allowed to sing with Meredith. 
And then Meredith got stage fright and I kept going. And I remember having a moment of recognition for myself, just deeply in myself, not even about the audience. I don't know. It wasn't always so much about, I need to be seen. I need to be heard. It wasn't, for me, it's always been a deeper thing, just more of a, this is who I am. I still, to this day, prefer rehearsal over performance. I just like it. I like the process of it. I like the, I guess if you are an athlete and you prefer practice to the game, I really enjoy all of it. And I always did, even when I was little, but I remember Meredith dropping out and me having this very strong sense of knowing that I could take care of her and I could take care of the concert and I could finish it out. And, and then having a pride, not that Meredith had stage fright. It wasn't that because I would have preferred for her to finish it, but just understanding that maybe Meredith was really good at some things and that maybe this is what I was good at. So it gave me a a sense of self. Um, And then the bragging from my parents and stuff was, it was nice, but it also, I just, it was also got to be embarrassing. (laughs) It's just like, I don't, how do you do this thing that I do, but kind of do it in a vacuum, but you can't, I mean, I guess you could, maybe that's what recording artists are like, but I don't know. I'm just more of a theater person. <laughs> I love that. And I love that when you transferred schools, went to a, a new high school and you thought, oh my goodness, I'll let you t- tell the story that you had to take singing. You had to study music and technically yeah. you weren't supposed to take voice classes till you were much older. Right. The school says, but you got the sister to let you I did. Take voice classes. Well, it's funny. I went to this all-girls Catholic high school, Ursuline Academy in Cincinnati. And um, my sister had gone there. My sister's seven years older than I am. And my sister was one of the first, I think, I think she and someone else in her class were the first two girls from this school to go to an Ivy League. My sister went to Yale. And so my sister was sort of a legend at Ursuline. And And then I come bopping along and I remember taking the entrance exam. And the main thing I remember thinking was there's no way that I'm going to continue on and go to Anderson High School because I had been very bullied and tormented. I'm soft hearted. I, I am, I'm a perfect candidate to pick on. So do you hear that? Everyone who's listening to this podcast, if you're looking for someone to pick on, I'm a good candidate because I take it all to heart. (laughs) Um, I try not to, but it's just like who I am. Um, And anyway, I just thought there's no way that I'm going to continue on with these kids. I have to reinvent myself in some way. So I I walked into the the entrance exam and I took it. I knew that I bombed it. I remember them calling my parents and saying, you know, she didn't do so well, but she's Sharon's sister. So, I mean, she's Susan's sister, so we'll let her come. And then I got to Ursuline and I just thought, well, who am I? We know who Susan is. Susan's at Yale and, and it's going to be an attorney, but who am I? And I was at class registration and everybody was signing up for geometry and Latin and this and that. And I pieced out and disappeared and snuck down the hall because I knew where the choir room was. And there was a woman in there and she was unpacking boxes and she looked very strict and I knew her name because she was on the registration form of that I wanted to sign up for voice lessons. And it said, you must be 16 or have the permission of Miss Brown. And so I was like, well, who's Miss Brown? I'm going to go find her because I need permission. I think I was 13. I was young. I was a young freshman. <sighs> and so I walked in and, and she was unpacking boxes and I said, hi, my name is Sharon Wheatley, and I need your permission to take voice lessons. And she turned around and she said, I don't give permission until you're 16. And I said, I understand that, but I'm different. And she said, how are you different? And I said, because I'm ready and I'm a singer. And there was something, she was so strict. I think that she assumed that I was just going to turn on my heel and walk out. And there was something maybe 
about my, here we go again with this word, tenacity, um, that was a little disarming to her. And I remember her putting down the box and walking over to the piano and playing like scales. And so I was singing and I had been listening to a lot of Judy Garland and Bette Midler and um, Andrew McArdle. And, you know, I think that that's the year that maybe Chorus Line came out. So I was doing that sort of very classic belt. And then once it got to a certain note, I couldn't go above that anymore. And she said, this is where I want you to sing. And I thought, aha, more like Julie Andrews. So then I sang like that. And and then she signed my slip to let me take voice lessons. What was the song that you sang for her again? Do you I think that I sang, I think she had me sing Hello Young Lovers from The King and I. And she kept modulating the key up and up and up. So, and then she would only let me sing classical music. So for four years in high school, I only sang classical music and I only studied classical music. So I have a great education in, and music theory. I took my AP music theory exam. I took my AP music history exam because this, this incredible strict woman, um, you know, she and I were a good match. She gave me a lot of discipline that I would not have had otherwise. And I love the story of how you visited your sister at Yale and mm-hmm. she took you to your first Broadway show. She did. Barnum. Barnum. And I remember, yeah. I mean, I remember Jim Dale who starred in Barnum, yes. but I really remember Glenn Close yeah. and she came out and I just remember thinking she was so beautiful and unusual looking and she didn't have the greatest voice, but there was, I just remember thinking there's something about the way that she sings, which now I know, of course, is that she was acting. It was the way she was acting. The lyric, of course, was gorgeous. And she was singing the song called The Colors of My Life. And uh, it was just so that amazing that that's what we went yeah. to. I'm sure that it's what was on TKTS at the time. You know, I mean, my sister was a college student and taking me. So I'm sure that it was, you know, whatever we could get. But that's what we saw. So here you knew from very early on that you wanted to be on Broadway. Can you talk about your Broadway debut? My Broadway debut was in Les Mis. In, um, well, I was cast in the tour. So it was a Broadway okay. tour, but that's that was my mm-hmm. first big show. But then also Les Mis was also my Broadway my my first Broadway debut. I have this annoying habit of once I'm in the show in one production, then I, I end up pop, I quit. And then I end up popping up in every other product. Like they just keep hiring, you know, <laughs> can you go to Des Moines and be in Phantom today? I'm like, yeah, sure. I can go do that. So I, it was in, that's that, but I remember, um, I remember a lot of things about it actually, mostly um, in my audition which was for um, this man, Richard J. Alexander, who discovered so much talent. He discovered so much, so many fabulous singers. Um, And then he went on to give me another opportunity later, which I'll talk about in a minute. But I walked in and Richard J. said to me, he said, you have the, he said, okay, I know you can sing. Um, And then he had me do like a bunch of stuff in the audition and and I left and I just thought, there's no way I got that job. I mean, it was my first big audition for anything. I was non-union. I was like, well, that was a good learning experience. And then I'm sure I went shopping, which is what I do when I'm stressed out. And by the time I got home, my then boyfriend said, they've been calling you because of course, you know, there weren't cell phones back in 92, which is when I booked Les Mis. And I called and they said, um, we'd like to they we'd like to offer you the position of swing on the tour of Les Mis, and I didn't know what a swing was, and I had never seen Les Mis, and I said um, I was a waitress at Macy's at the time, <laughs> and I quit <laughs> immediately, and they said we need you in LA on Monday because it's always fast. It seems like it's always fast. Mm. And I went and saw, they gave me tickets to go see the show that night. And I took my friend Hyland and we sat in the back 
And I couldn't, I just couldn't believe, I just couldn't believe I was going to do it. And I remember Richard J. walking me over to equity to, to get my equity card. And that was like the thing to join the union. It just seemed so, it was so impossible. And I remember again, I had like an impossible version of how I was going to do it. I thought I'm not going to be like an equity candidate or try to earn points towards it. I'm not going to join equity until I have a Broadway show. And so I walked over and did that. And, and I don't know. And then I flew to LA and it was crazy. It was so hard though, Gerald. I mean, it was so hard. I understudied, well, I think I understudied nine or 13 people, but the way that the split tracks, there were all these different variations of it that it ended up being like 17 different variations of how I could do the show. And the show is long. It's three hours. When I was doing it, it was three hours and 17 minutes long. And I just remember, as I always think, this is my normal narrative. I'm going to get fired. Um, I was like, I'm going to get fired. There's no way. <laughs> I'm never going to be able to know all of this. And so I just, I just didn't sleep. I just studied and studied and studied and studied. And then my first night on, I was so stoked to be there. And I was running in on the, um, on the turntable, just having this moment of, this is amazing. Oh my God, I'm in late mass. You know, and saying my stuff and acting and singing. And we were running in slow motion and this guy ran up and caught up with me. And he was like, hey, whoa, calm down. I mean, <laughs> it's just a play. And I just remember like uh-huh. my world shattering. And I thought, what, what? I waited my whole life and you're so jaded and we're not even 10 minutes in and that's what you're saying to me. And you guys are just going to talk about what you're going to have for dinner. What? So, you know, it's an interesting thing because you're not, when you're joining a show like that, you're coming in to a company that's existed in many different variations of time that they've been there. And I really, over time in my career, started to think, that the, the dream of what I wanted out of a show, what I had formulated in my childhood bedroom of what I thought Broadway looked like, I didn't think it existed. I, I thought, well, I have clearly, that is a fantasy land that, because it's, you know, it's work, it's a job and it's high stakes and it's high pressure and it's not, it's not fun and games. But then I did come from away, and I was right. Yes, <laughs> yes, you really just right. did the role. You That's were... right. I was totally we'll right. To... <laughs> I love that. P.S. Because how? When did you grad? How long were you out of school at that point when you booked Les Mis? You hadn't been out of school that long. Two years, three years. Gosh. Yeah, long enough. Long enough that you know. As, as we all do, I think I had quit the business just a couple days before my audition, but I quit the business all the time. It's like my thing. <laughs> well, <laughs> like, let's go. Because <laughs> you, didn't you quit the business before Come From Away? I did. I sense? officially, like, so I really, really quit the yeah. business. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. How did that, I mean, you moved out of New York and here... You yeah, heard you about know, the show. <laughs> I had done four Broadway shows. I had written a book. I had performed in, you know, galas and done all the fancy things. And and I had two kids and a husband. And New York City's hard. Oh. I mean, I, you know, <laughs> shocking to no one. Even yeah. Even the most tenacious of us can't sustain work in this business. And I always used to joke around and say, it's terrible to be a workaholic in a profession that doesn't, you have to work so hard to get the job. I would have been great in a corporate environment where you had to work your way up the ladder. I would have been great at that. Uh, But in showbiz, it's different and you have to wait a really long time. And it's always interesting to me that people my closest friends really consider me highly successful. And I see so much unemployment. 
in my life. And I know how bad it got and money wise and trying to have an apartment that's big enough for two kids and the stress and the strain on all of it. And, um, we ended up making a decision that we were going to leave New York and, um, we just had to, we were suffocating and I, I kind of just boxed it all up. I remember a friend of mine called me and kind of challenged me on it and said, I don't, you're not making the right decision. You're giving up too much. You're giving up too much. And I didn't really feel like I had much of a choice. I mean, I did. Of course I did. I'm an, I'm a grown independent human being, but I looked at my family and I thought this is not sustainable. So my now ex-husband got a job in San Diego and we had been talking about moving out for a long time. He, he moved into education and we decided that if he could get something out of the city that we would look at it. And he got something in San Diego and, you know, it was March in New York city and San Diego seemed super appealing. And so we jumped ship and I really meant it. I really thought I can no longer stand in front of a folding table and in front of people that are much younger than me and never be enough. I, I can't do that anymore. And I didn't like who it was making me. And, um, so yeah, it was a sincere leaving. And I remember looking in the rearview mirror of our U-Haul truck, literally, that sounds so trite, but it's true. And I remember looking and thinking, I'm done. So three years later, I was in San Diego and I was writing. I was writing for Kristen Chenoweth, which I got that job through Richard J. Alexander, who came back around and said, um, Kristen was, Kristen needed to use, or was thinking about using puppets in one of her concerts. And Richard J said, this was before I left New York. She, he said, can you come down and show us how to use puppets? Because I'd been, I started writing for puppets. I wrote shows for the Bronx Zoo where that were like edutainment. So it was all about, you know, the zoo, the animals and whatever. And, um, and we had, we built puppets for the show. So I was also being sort of like the puppet master, you know, running auditions, teaching people how to puppet, directing the show. I mean, you know, sort of being like a one man band of um, how can I make money? And this seems like fun. So he said, can you come down and show us how to use these puppets? And I said, yeah, sure. And as I was on the train down there, I thought to myself, writing for puppets is really specific really specific. <laughs> and I happened to be very good at it. And I thought, who's going to write this sketch? So I wrote a sketch on the train and emailed it when I got off the train to Richard J. And he emailed it to the stage manager in the room and they printed it and passed it out. And I walked in and Richard J. said, okay, we're going to read it down. I'm telling you, it was that fast. And I had never met Kristen before. And he was like, we're going to use it. And she looked at me and she said, where have you been? <laughs> and I just was like, wow, look at that. Isn't that funny? And then I went on to write some good, some not very good sketches for Kristen um, and, uh, and maintained a relationship with her. So when Come From Away was casting, just to bring the story back full circle, I was writing pilots for television shows in my garage in San Diego. And I had written Kristen, I'd co-written something for Kristen, a rewrite of the song Popular about Anthony Weiner. And it was on The Tonight Show and it went yes. crazy viral. That was, that was me and my friend, Alan Kendall. We wrote it together. And I thought, huh, I have... 30 seconds to do something with this. So I sat down and I wrote her a pilot and she attached. And then I got my friend, Teresa Rebeck to attach as the showrunner. And I got agents and managers and attorneys in LA. And I started going into all of these rooms, meeting people, meeting people, meeting people. Who are you? Where did you come from? What's your story? And I was in the middle of talking to like the Hallmark 
channel or something about a series. And Rachel Hoffman from Bernie Telsey Casting sent me a Facebook message and said, what are you doing in San Diego? And I remember at the time thinking, (laughs) why am I creating a career that's not in San Diego? Everything I was doing would have taken me to Los Angeles or New York. Like I couldn't get anything going in San Diego. I couldn't get auditions for anything. I remember I applied to be an Uber driver. I couldn't get a job as an Uber driver. Like I really, really was struggling. And I had one friend, well, I had two friends and the kids were happy. My husband at the time was happy and I was lost. So when she wrote and said, what are you doing in San Diego? I wrote back and I said, I don't know. And I said, but I will tell you, I don't think I've sung anything in three years. And she said, there's a show, and I think you're right for it. And that's how it happened. Not crazy. Unbelievable. I know. Crazy. And when Come From Away hit, Gerald, I'll tell you the truth. I knew. I was, I was like, this is it. When I walked into that room and I felt, I just felt the energy, the rehearsal, the binders, the music stands, the day one, we're going to start with Welcome to the Rock. And mm-hmm. I had that feeling of that knowing of, I gave up too much. I'm not myself anymore. This is it. This is my ticket. And I stayed with Come From Away. I I dropped all of my managers and agents and attorneys in LA. I just was like, I'm out. I've got to follow this show. And here I sit seven years later. That's extraordinary. I know. And you know what's even more fun? I just reconnected with one of my writing agents in LA about the possibility Uh. of turning drive into a feature film or a series. So we're in the middle of sort of talking about that and working on that and thinking about that. But it was great because I called him up and I was like, hi, it's me. I know you haven't heard from me in seven years. And he was like, oh God, all right, here we go again. Like I was right (laughs) back on board. (laughs) But I love how Drive incorporates, you know, all these worlds of yours, your writing world, your come from away world. Let's talk about Drive and what inspired it. Well, I think I had a sense that whatever happened during the pandemic, knowing me, it was probably going to be funny. And I am a person who chronicles my life. And so I called my book agent and we'd been trying to figure out something for me to do for a long time because I wrote Till the Fat Girl Sings back in 2006 and had not written anything since then. I mean, I'd written, I had written things, but I had not written a book. And I called her up and I was like, I have this idea. Tell me what you think. This is April of 2020. And I said, I have to get Toby to San Diego to spend the summer with their dad. What if I rent an RV and drive in an RV across the country in a pandemic. And I have no idea what I'm doing and I have no desire to do it. And she's <laughs> and you've like, never ridden no an RV before. I've only right. been in an RV when I was on set of a movie okay. or a television show. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> so you're not at no. the wheel. Okay. No, where I okay. arrive and my costume's there once. and then it's cleaned Sorry. overnight. And then I, yeah. you know, I go shoot my scene and that's it. So yeah. no, I had never yeah. done it. I had no desire to it. I thought it sounded gross and buggy and snakes and dark and smelly and uncomfortable. And why would anyone do it? <laughs> and then in my age, it was like, I think that's funny. And I said, okay, I think it sounds miserable. She was like, that's even funnier. I was like, okay, great. (laughs) (laughs) So that's what happened. And then we got, we loaded up a 30-foot RV. I negotiated a great deal because at the time, no one was in an RV. There were, they were everywhere. No one was driving around because the whole world was locked down. And I just thought, yeah, but if we're in an RV, I called my doctor. And I said, I have to get Toby to San Diego. And I don't want to drive in a car because then I have to go in public restrooms and hotels and restaurants and the whole shebang. What if I rent an RV and just do like 
quick runs into grocery stores to stock up the refrigerator. We only eat in the RV. We only use the RV bathroom, no exceptions, never sleep anywhere else. What do you think? And she was like, it's still risky, but I think it sounds as safe as it can be. Better than a plane, better than a car. And so I rented it. The intention originally, I think, was for two weeks, and we stayed out for 91 days. It was awesome. And it wasn't, and it wasn't just you and the humans. There were some- no, no, because when we left New York. <laughs> the menagerie. I know, yes. right? So I am remarried to a production stage manager. Her name is Martha Donaldson. And she was the production stage manager of Diana at the time that the pandemic hit. And she was exhausted. They were in previews. They were about to open the show. And if anybody knows anything about theater, they know that if you are the production stage manager of a gigantic musical like this, you're exhausted. So when the pandemic hit... I'll never forget Martha coming home. She dumped her backpack on the floor, took off her glasses, laid down on the couch and said, I'm so relieved. I promptly fell asleep. And then Toby and I made a 12 layer cake on the first day that we then frosted and Toby wrote, wash your hands. And, and I was thought, well, okay, now we've made a cake. What's next? <laughs> okay. We're going to homeschool. We're going to do this. But Then the elevators in our building went out because of a water main break and people were shoving into the elevators. I think we would have stayed put in New York City because why would we leave? Except we had two dogs that had to be walked at least twice a day. And we were on a very limited elevator situation here in our building and uh, people were cramming into the elevators. And I thought, well, this is unsustainable and not cool for the building. They definitely need people to leave because it was going to be months before the elevators were fixed because no one was working. So we did one big push down in the elevator, packed up our car, and we loaded in our two cats and our two dogs and our one kid. And we drove to Cincinnati, Ohio and stayed in an Airbnb because it was closer to where my older child was in college. And that made sense to me. I was like, let's try to get people as close together as we can. And I grew up in Cincinnati and love Cincinnati. So it was all made sense to me. And so ended up Charlotte, sure enough, did come to Cincinnati. And then we all stayed in this Airbnb until we had to get (laughs) <laughs> to San Diego. And that's when we packed up everything and we split. And here you wrote about all your adventures <laughs> in this RV. We sure did. With fire hydrants and uh-huh. just the way you describe the, the national parks and the scenery and the majesticness of it all. You know, what, what, yeah. And the people that we yeah. met, you know, I was nervous. Yes, I'm, I'm, I'm newly, I mean, I, you know, we joke that I'm sort of newly gay. I call Martha an organic gay uh, because she's, you know, been a lesbian forever. And I, I fell in love with Martha and, and we got married and, and I live in New York city in Midtown. So, you know, I've never been particularly out in America um, with Martha. And I just thought, I don't even know how this is going to go. We're going into these RV. The original title of the book actually was out in America because, um, I didn't know what it was going to be like for us to go into these RV parks and were people going to tolerate us, which I came to learn was my bias that everywhere we went, people were so lovely. No one cared. We were all just people in a pandemic. And if Martha and I didn't know how to hook up to the electric, there was going to be some guy named Roy right next door who, you know, was maybe in the military and traveling with his family. And he came over and, you know, Martha and he would become fast friends and I would panic that they were too close to each other and we were going to catch COVID and, you know, they'd pet the dogs. And I mean, we just made friends with everybody everywhere we went. So it was, that was all on me. That was my fear. And so that was a big lesson to learn right there. Is it hard to put into words how this experience has changed you? Yes. I mean, honestly, Gerald, I feel like I'm still figuring that out. I think in the same way that everybody is, right? I don't feel like my experience is uncommon, except that 
I have such location-specific work. For me, I never had the option of working on Zoom. So I was just purely out of work. And it definitely changed a little of the hardwiring in my brain, how fast my job was taken away and how long it was gone. And thank God that I'm a person that has grit and tenacity and believed that the show was going to come back, but also looking to do something else. I didn't want my kids to just look at me, sit on a couch for 18 months. I wanted to do something with them. I wanted to show them something. And then once I'd done the trip, I thought I want to have something. I want to have something I can hold in my hand and say, this is what I did during the pandemic. This is, this is what we learned. This is what we did. This is how we laughed. This is what we did wrong. This is what was sad. Um, I just, I wanted that. I wanted it to be to be something. And now on the other side, to go right back into the life where I was, it's, it's, it's both incredible that things can come back and be so normal. I mean, my job is normal with the exception that I look out in the audience that everybody has on a mask. Um, but it's not normal also because now I had this taste of not being at work every night and getting to spend hours and hours and hours with my kids and sleeping under the stars and the smell of the campfire. And I make the best s'more. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, it's, it definitely, I did come back feeling very like, oh my God, I live in the middle of concrete and I haven't heard a bird sing in a really long time. Made me much more of an outdoor person. Um, but also so grateful. I mean, I'll never forget the, f- uh, the f- getting the call that we were going to do a live capture of the film. Yeah. And just thinking, how, how, how has this happened? How has this happened to me? How did I manage to get into Come From Away? How am I still in it? How is there a pandemic? How is it still coming back? How is it that Martha and I happen to be two people? who were in the two shows that filmed during the pandemic. Martha left for a while and did Diana, filmed that for Netflix, and then I went and filmed Come From Away for Apple TV+. Plus. So, you know, feeling such good fortune about all of it. What was it like that first day coming back to Broadway? <laughs> oh. You know, there were, oh. the, it's different. The filming of the movie is very different than what it was like coming back for the first performance. Because the filming of the movie, you know, you're on that like movie timeline. It's sort of like, great, great, great. You guys think that this is fine. Great. We're on a, you know, we're on a budget. Great. Okay, good. You you can cry for two seconds and then we got to move on. Now, when we came back to Broadway, (laughs) on the other hand, um, it was, it, it was this unbelievable experience of everyone in that, audience. It was their first time back in a theater. It was our first time performing in front of a a full house, a live audience. I really, I I thought, oh, this is going to be great. But I didn't, I was not prepared for the energy that we were going to get from the audience. And the tricky thing is if you were in the audience, then you just got to feel all of your feelings. Right? You got to cry and yeah. laugh and clap for everybody as they came on and just sit there and, and relish in the fact that you were back on Broadway. If you're one of the 12 of us, we walked on, the audience went nuts. I mean, full standing ovation, would not sit down, cheering, 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 gives me goosebumps. And for the 12 of us, we're standing there, we can barely hear the drum to keep the beat in our feet. Right. And so we're just waiting until when is everybody going to sit down so we can start the show. And in those moments thinking, turn off all feelings, turn off all thought. You are here to do a job. And the best gift that you can give this audience is to deliver. And so it's a different kind of pressure. And it was awesome and incredible and wonderful in every way. And it also... Uh, was very hard, thrilling, yeah. 
but having to really, I'm just giving you the real answer, but really having to keep a lid on it. Because what you want to do is walk out and immediately break character and look at the audience and clap for them and start to sob and just be like, oh my God, you guys, can you believe it? We're finally back. <laughs> I never thought it would happen. I mean, that's what you want to do. Yeah. And, and, and you can't, you can't do it. So, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a challenge, a good challenge. I'm up for the challenge, yeah. but it's a challenge. And here you're in your fifth year. Yes. Right? Be on Broadway. What is that? I love that this show is, is about kindness at its center. It's about so many things. It's about connections. It's about strangers coming together. Yeah. And generosity. Yeah. So many things. It's a wonderful thing to be in a show that's basically a masterclass in human generosity every night. It is a wonderful gift of a show to be a part of, to have created, to be the ambassador of. I I have to be nice everywhere I go because, <laughs> because people know who I am sometimes. It's so, if I were a jerk to a waiter, it would really look bad, <laughs> uh, which is okay. We take that very seriously, all of us in the show. And the show has made us nicer, kinder, more generous people. Um, it is a life-changing experience to be in Come From Away and to see Come From Away. And I can't say enough, if you are looking for the perfect show to see at this moment in time, this is the one because we all need to remember that kindness exists in the world and it's like riding a bike. You just have to get back on it. And even when people come at you with frustration and anger, that you can come back to them with generosity and kindness and a remembering that we have all gone through something. And this is about community pulling together. Such a, a key moment, a key statement, especially now where especially we are now. in the world. Yeah. I wish that for everyone. Yes. Yes. Sharon, it's such a gift to have you on the show. Thank you so, so much Thank for coming on. Thank you for on. having me. It's just a pleasure. It's been so nice getting to know you. I can't, thank I you. can't thank you enough. Thank you. Have a wonderful day. I will. You too. It still happens every day. When lightning strikes, it's the moment you know. The theme song was written by Tom McGovern. This episode was edited by Kyle Moore. This episode was produced by Anna Stroud. When lightning strikes. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.